Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are continuing with part two of two on the Gospel of Matthew, among other reasons, because this is Matthew lectionary year, and also because we did the other three and are now getting around to this fourth, which is often called the first gospel, because it shows up first in the New Testaments. So uh, we're going to get into today some material that is unique to Matthew, not appearing in the other Gospels. But first, Dad's going to give us an overview of just the Sitz im Leben, as the Germans like to say, the situation in life or the specific uh, circumstances that gave rise to Matthew's community's memories of Jesus and the resulting Gospel. So take it away, Dad. Yeah, uh, there's, there's two, I think there's two kinds of interesting clues here. Uh, many people, commentators, speculate that the region north of the land of Palestine, so-called Syria, would be the uh, Aramaic uh, setting in life for the Matthews community, because we know that this was a, a mixed area of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Edward Schweitzer, 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 uh, says, what seems to me most important is the central role played by Peter. And that points to Syria. Now let's just review, review that for a minute. In the gospel, Peter exemplifies the little faith uh, in the story about him walking on the water, hesitating, falling, and nevertheless being rescued by Jesus. And that's in chapter 14. In chapter 16, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah uh, is has that special blessing pronounced upon him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In chapter 17, you have the odd story of the temple tax. Um, right. <laughs> I love that story. It's so weird. <laughs> it's in Its setting is in Capernaum, I think. And... Um, uh, Jesus asked Peter, uh, uh, "Did the ta- you know is it, who 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 has to pay this tax?" And the answer is, uh, "It's an exploitative tax. It's a tax that's exploitative." Uh, and uh, then Jesus continues, "Nevertheless, so that we don't give offense, pay the temple tax. Just go catch a fish, and when you do, out of its mouth will come the coin to pay the tax." A very odd story. <laughs> it's very odd. <laughs> it is not in the lectionary. Yeah, it's just pointing again to the uh, the importance of Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. And we know historically that the Roman Catholic Church has always based its claim to a Petrine office and Petrine authority on the interpretation of chapter 16, you are Petros, and on this rock, the word Peter in Greek means rock, on this rock I will build my church. And then the classic, of course, argument is that it's Peter's confession, which is the rock. No, it's Peter's person, which is the rock. So we don't need to get into that. Uh, But as Schweitzer says, all this points to Syria. Now, why do we know that? From the book of Acts, we know that around the year 44, Peter had to leave Jerusalem. We see that in Acts 12. And from then on, it's James who plays the leading role in Jerusalem. Both these conclusions are supported by Paul's testimony in Galatians 2.11 and following. According to which James in Jerusalem sends down emissaries to instruct Peter how to behave in Antioch. Which is in Syria. In Syria, yes, Antioch and Syria. And then how the dispute with Paul uh, uh, is finished is Paul actually leaves that out uh, in in Galatians uh, 2.11 and following. Paul never tells us what happens after he stood up face to face with Peter and called him a hypocrite for uh, uh, refusing to eat with the Gentiles after the influencers from James came down. And, but it, we do know that after this incident, Paul seems to have left Antioch and no longer used it as a base for his mission. So that kind of leads to a a historical sketch that uh, Syria was under the influence of the Peter. Uh, James had more uh, uh, leadership in Jerusalem. 
than Paul uh, in Asia Minor and beyond in the Greek-speaking communities. Uh, in and then, moreover, in contrast to Peter, James, the brother of the Lord, plays no role at all in Matthew. So, uh, while Paul is not mentioned in Matthew, and James is not mentioned in Matthew, the apostle that seems to have leadership is Peter. And uh, that these circumstances seem to locate the Gospel of Matthew in Syria. Hmm. And so would that explain why why there's more about Peter in Matthew than in Mark? Because uh, early, later, post-canonical uh, Christian writer Papias reports a story that Mark was Peter's interpreter and rather haphazardly wrote down what Peter told him. So Mark is also often associated with a Petrine source, but it doesn't, Mark is not nearly as invested in the priority of Peter. And so you're saying this would explain why Matthew develops that idea more because it's the community, the larger post-resurrection community in Syria under Peter's leadership. That's where Matthew's gospel emerges from. Right. Uh, Papias also says that uh, Matthew was written in Hebrew, so I'm not quite sure that we can take Papias's testimony <laughs> with more than a grain of salt or less than a grain of salt. Um, Fair enough. So anyway, the yeah, I, I do think that's right. You, you know, centrally, Mark tells the story of Peter's betrayal. And as we point out in the angelic message on Easter morning, go tell Peter and the disciples that they will see him in Galilee and so forth. And uh, uh, Matthew repeats the story. He lets Peter be Peter, uh, including Peter as a failure. So it's, a, it's in any case an interesting story that the early Christian church preserved the story of Peter's betrayal, even in the gospel, which seems to make a big deal about its uh, derivation from Peter's apostolic ministry. The other thing about the situation in life, uh, and this is really kind of interesting, um, is, the as you mentioned in the last episode, certain surprising correspondences with the Gospel of John. Like you, I've often thought that John has some kind of relationship to the Gospel of Luke. But a really great uh, Norwegian Lutheran Bible scholar, Nils Alstrup Dahl, uh, uh, points out that in the Passion story, the agreements between Matthew and John against the other Gospels are more significant and more interesting than those between Matthew and Luke. And then he ticks them off. The high priest's name is mentioned, Caiaphas. Evidently, that is not in Mark or Luke, though it is in John. The account of a plot to kill Jesus the greed of Judas, the identification of the betrayer, emphasis on Jesus' sovereign power at the arrest. Do you not know that I could call down 12 legions of angels, right? Um, the inscription placed on the cross bearing the name Jesus. Jesus, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, right? And Joseph of Arimathea being identified as a disciple of Jesus and the newness of the tomb he provides for Jesus and the appearance of the resurrected Jesus to the women at the tomb. All of those uh, are correspondences between Matthew and John. That's really interesting, isn't it? That is really interesting. So um, we have to then, like you said, the synoptic problem seems to get thicker and thicker the more we move along, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really does. I've always wanted to argue that John is not some bizarre side development in early Christianity, that it really does deeply presuppose knowledge of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in various ways, uh, and that it is Therefore, its status is that of the as the so-called spiritual interpretation of the synoptics, uh, but that Matthew picks up any number of his uh, uh, motifs in the Passion narrative from Matthew, or at least, as you said earlier, somehow shares a, a, a an oral tradition with the sources of Matthew. 
Yeah, I, I, I actually quite like this because it means that there is a, a much more of a Venn diagram overlap between the four than a, a kind of more sterile sense that, you know, here's number one. And then, you know, the next two guys, they had their own independent sources that they added on plus one they had in common. And then there's this fourth guy who does his own thing entirely. But it seems that there's a lot of just rich, rich preaching and interpretation going on. And within their own communities, they're, you know, selecting and exam examining and interrogating what they've been received and, you know, and, and interpreting it according to their life together as a community, what challenges they're facing. I mean, it, it, I find that inspiring also because it is, you know, the, the firing shot for the whole process of theological discernment in the whole life of the church, if that's in fact already happening in the canon. Although, of course, the canon is always going to take interpretive priority. The fact that they are already doing selective and interpretive work for their own settings, you know, in, in a way, gives us permission to do the same ourselves. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's really important. And I failed to mention a moment ago the passage in chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, the so-called Johannine verse. Uh, uh, no one comes to the Father but by this, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, right. That's totally Johann. Wait, I always am struck when I find that Matthew is like, hey, how'd John get in here? Right, right. And it's very interesting that immediately following that, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, uh, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that is a kind of, again, a, a Christological motif about abiding or resting in Jesus. Um, um, and uh, with the corresponding idea that so far as you come and abide and rest in Jesus, the doing of his will in discipleship is not burdensome. It becomes your way of life. Yes, and that is profoundly Johannine in its insight. Let's go on to the birth story, the nativity story. Okay, well, before we have a nativity, first we need a genealogy. So many people pass over this first bit of Matthew because it's uh, like in the King James, it's begat, begat, begat. <laughs> my, my translation now says, uh, was the father of, which is a uh, more common English, if less evocative. And um, it's very carefully structured according to uh, 14 generations in three different moves from Abraham to the Babylonian exile. Very interesting that Matthew thinks it's a important to to uh, anchor the story in a, a, a point from the Babylonian exile and then the Babylonian exile to Jesus, another 14, or sorry, Abraham to David, then David to exile, then exile to to uh, Jesus. And, um, but the reason why you should definitely read it is because I think everyone agrees the most interesting part is the fact that four women are named. And um, obviously, women were necessary to the birth of all of these children who are mentioned. But there are four in particular that Matthew calls out to remember. So the first is Tamar, that is Judah's daughter in law, who was um, unjustly deprived a second husband when her first husband, Judah's son, died. So she dressed up like a prostitute, uh, tricked him, stole his stuff. And then when she presented her pregnant self to him and he said he was going to kill the father or her, or I don't remember, it's some uh, typical um, male blustering about how, you know, uh, uh, unlicensed pregnancy is always the woman's fault. She proves that it was in fact him and he judges her more just than I. So a woman whose uh, who's apparent sin is qualified as righteousness. So she's one of Jesus' ancestors. Then Rahab, I'm sure, Dad, as a Joshua commentator, you were excited to see the uh, Canaanite prostitute have her place right. in there. Then Ruth, you know, obviously the star of an entire little book of the Bible. And finally, the wife of Uriah, which I thought was a funny way That's of Sheba, uh, putting yeah. it. Yeah, Bathsheba, of course, but he doesn't name her Bathsheba. It's, it's almost like he's, um, even though obviously David is a beloved figure, like he's kind of like really putting the screws to David there and saying, yeah, you, you've fathered this child by the wife of Uriah, which you weren't supposed to do. And yet, once again, this uh, um, bad, uh, bad method of conceiving a child is specifically named in Jesus' genealogy. But then the real twist, um, almost like a, a, a kind of punchline at the end, is that it says that uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And we are going on to hear very clearly, unmistakably, without any possibility of dispute, that Joseph is not the physical, biological father of Jesus. So the right. whole story begins with this lineage of which Jesus has no biological part. Um, and I, I understand this to mean that this is the beginning of the adoptive relationship of all the people's of the world into Israel, the kind of language that Paul will use later. Um, This is already being set out from the beginning here that Jesus does not relate to Israel, uh, this particular lineage of Israel, though, of course, his mother is a Jew, um, uh, the lineage of David or Abraham in a biological way, but that adoption is going to be from the outset the way the new church is formed. And you should have mentioned... uh in that great uh, description of the four women in, in the genealogy, that three of them are Gentiles, right? Oh, right. Tamar, yes, of course, of course. Rahab yep. and Ruth are all not Jews, not not Israelites, and they are adopted into Israel. Right, which is, again, the significance of mentioning them, yeah. Right, right. I think Christer Stendhal's remark about this is quite insightful. He says the genuine point of the story is that the angel encourages Joseph, the son of David, to make this child a Davidic child. Thereby, Jesus' place in the genealogy is explained. God has ordered this ingrafting, or as you said, adoption. It's obvious that the supernatural birth of Jesus was known to Matthew, And the tradition was apparently known well enough, Stendhal writes, to have given rise to slanderous remarks. (laughs) But it is is equally clear that Matthew is not announcing the birth story. Furthermore, in Matthew, the virgin birth story is theologically mute. No Christological argument or insight is deduced from this great divine intervention. That's why he says... There is little reason to read the Emmanuel prophecy in the direction of incarnation. It's, it suggests instead a Jewish messianic understanding in Jesus' messianic deeds, God visits his people and sets them free from the hardships which their sins have justly caused. That's Christopher Stendhal's commentary on Matthew. Um, I would not, you know... Uh, uh, make such a hard and fast uh, discrimination against the notion of incarnation. But I think it's right to say that the story is really about the Jewishness of Jesus as that of being adopted into the line of David to fulfill the prophecies, the messianic prophecies in Isaiah 7 and 9. And I think, Sarah, that's something we'll be talking about in several episodes from now when we talk about Mary Theotokos. Yeah, so we'll, we'll just uh, put an asterisk there for more about Mary later. I think it is also interesting and important to note, though, that both Luke and Matthew, despite their very different Christmas stories, we can call them, they both connect to Bethlehem and Mary. So those are kind of two different directions in which this is attested. And if we're still positing some sort of unique Matthew-John relationship, um, Matthew doesn't really do much with Emmanuel. He says his name shall be Emmanuel, which is God with us. But then Joseph proceeds to name the child Jesus. And you're like, well, there's kind of a disconnect there. But in a way, you could say that the prologue of John is an extended meditation on Emmanuel. I mean, that's the whole point of the, the jo- yeah, Johannine prologue. Yeah. Well, then... Yeah, and, uh, and, go ahead. But there, sir, the, 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 the closing bracket is low. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mm-hmm. So the, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is in fact picked up at the beginning of the gospel, is in fact picked up at the conclusion of the gospel. Though, of course, now we see that the presence of God with us is the presence of the uh, of the earthly Jesus who has been crucified but raised from the dead so that he is an exalted um, uh, as Lord of the, of the cosmos and, and as such able to be present with the community of the disciples. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Very good. So then, as you mentioned, you know, several of the women in the genealogy are Gentiles and um, that it's already positing through adoption uh, and uh, engrafting of Gentiles into the Israel story. And that continues straight on with the Magi. So this is, again, unique to Matthew. Uh, we celebrate it as Epiphany. So these three um, witch doctors <laughs> from the East, sorcerers, astrologers, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Uh, Magos uh, it just does mean something like sorcerer in uh, in Acts. Um, Simon Magus, that is not a compliment to him. That, that right. is a bad thing for him to be. But these magi are received well. They know something about the birth of a savior that uh, Herod, who should know better because he's a, a Jew, doesn't know. And he even has to consult with his advisors and say, now wait, where is this Messiah King supposed to be born? And then embarks <laughs> upon a infanticidal campaign um, against uh, lots of little boys uh, recalling Pharaoh's oppression of the, the baby boys of Israel under in back in Egypt, though it, that is not explicitly invoked. It's Rachel weeping, which is part of a Jeremiah prophecy. Right, right, and it's also the confrontation uh, uh, between um, political power and the messianic politics of God, according to the Gospel of Matthew, um, for whom for which it is very important. Uh, the statement, you know how the Gentiles lorded over one another, it shall not be so among you. Uh, but whoever would be greatest of all must become a servant of all. So um, uh, the confrontation with Herod will then correspond, at the beginning of the story of Jesus, will correspond with the confrontation with the Sanhedrin and then Pontius Pilate at the end of the gospel. And just a, a quick uh, forecasting of unique Mathean material about Gentiles. There, there really is an interesting kind of back and forth that goes on here because the Magi obviously are Gentiles. Uh, later, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, do not preach to Gentiles or Samaritans, but only to the house of Israel. Uh, he, but he does uh, heal a centurion's servant. Centurion is a Roman soldier, clearly not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Um, he, uh, Matthew Matthew renames Mark's Syrophoenician woman as a Canaanite woman, which is, uh, to me, it seems like a bizarrely antiquated term there. But uh, I think there's no clear indication of someone who should not be in Israel and yet is there anyway, because, you know, the Canaanites you're supposed to get rid of. Um, and then when he talks about church discipline, you know, there's the process you go through, talk to the person directly, then with a couple from the church, then the whole church. And if they won't, let them be as a Gentile to you. And um, that sounds like blanket excommunication. But I think you could also read it as this is someone you start over again from the beginning. Uh, someone who is this far out of the proper behavior of the community, you just assume, all right, this is someone who has not heard, understood, or believed the gospel start over again. I think you can read it that way instead of in an excommunication, uh, you know, absolute cutoff kind of way. Because again, as we've said several times now, the whole gospel ends with the great commission to go to all nations. And that is also said all Gentiles, all the nations of the, of the earth. So the Gentiles are the people who need to hear this news. Yes. And that includes when the, the, the disciples of the community are backslidden and need to be called to account and re-evangelized and re-catechized. And that's what I think uh, you're right to, to, to point out, treat him as a Gentile. That's not necessarily meant in a, in a, in a kind of damnation sense. Uh, but like uh, Paul says, I think, in the Corinthian correspondence, uh, expel them so that they may be chastised by Satan and perhaps by that chastisement in the end be saved. Uh, the discipline is always ordered to a, uh, it's required by the backsliding sinful behavior of a disciple which threatens the uh, existence of the community because it offends the little ones, right? Um, and so forth. But the offender is 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 a target through this severe mercy is a target of redemption. 
Right. Yeah. And I'll just say from my first extremely painful experience of being a pastor many years ago was the important learning that there may be Gentiles in your congregation. And I don't mean it in the ethnic sense and that your first mission field is always your congregation, not just the people on the outside. But it also gives you some way to understand the importance of ongoing catechism and how to deal with people who are in the church but seem to have not had any of its um, good news or transformative power make any any impact on them so far. So uh, they're they're not simply bad or evil, but they're they're back at the starting point. Start over from the beginning with them. Right. I think it's worth dwelling on Matthew 18 for a little while now because church discipline is such a fraught issue for us. And uh, you pointed out to me that one of our early podcasts on Holy Communion uh, dash discipline has been one of our most popular episodes, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, it's in our top ten out of over, you know, now going in our fifth year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the problem of discipline is very difficult, and Matthew eighteen is kind of the classic early church statement on on procedures for church discipline. Uh, let me just preface this by reminding uh, listeners that. The Magisterial Reformation, in the Lutheran version in any case, distinguished uh, between uh, the uh, uh, inherited a distinction between the great band and the little band. And the great band, uh, of course, subjected you to execution by the state. And uh, given the status of Martin Luther and others in that period, they didn't go much for that idea, <laughs> even, if they, even if they succumbed to it later on with respect to the men, uh, followers of Menno Simmons. Um, but the little band was this idea of church discipline, that, that when someone is scandalizing the community by their immoral behavior, for the sake of the community, the offender has to be called out. And that, again, is uh, for the sake of the community and ultimately also for the sake of the offender. Uh, and so that, that was the idea of church discipline in the early Reformation. Uh, it's been very hard for us to, uh, to execute any kind of policy like that in the contemporary world. Uh, you would almost say that there is no church discipline except for institutional disloyalty. That's the only time that dis discipline is exercised. When you start calling a spade a spade regarding your denominational realities, then you can get in trouble and be defrocked. Um, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. There are certain kinds of um, um, crossing of sexual boundaries that can require discipline. But even there, I wonder if it's motivated more uh, by a fear of litigation and uh, uh, civil penalties arising from lawsuits than it is anything like what Matthew 18 recommends. Well, you're talking there about examples of like a um, church, like a denominational leadership, like bishops or superintendents disciplining clergy, which is hard enough. But I think clergy disciplining parishioners is almost impossible. I actually uh, recently I was teaching my um, Wittenberg course um, remotely still because of stupid COVID. Um, but uh, almost all the African pastors were like, can you please help us figure out discipline? It is such a problem here. And I'm just like, I, I can't tell you. I have no idea what to do. We don't do discipline so far as I know. If you tried to rebuke anyone, they would just quit the church and go to another one or just quit church completely, which certainly happens. But then I started to think, well, actually, I do know a few cases of um, basically, I would say, predatory personalities, um, whether they're floaters who go church to church predating or um, cases where like there's a domestic abuse situation and the abuser needs to be removed from the community of the church. I've heard of cases like that. Um, but they're, I mean, they have to be pretty bad and pretty destructive. And, and I, I think that's probably just as well if we were nosing into everybody's life and um, all the ways that they do things wrong. I mean, there'd be no one left in church. But yeah, how to, how to do church discipline well, even when it's an extreme case of, of really destructive behavior is uh, exceedingly difficult anymore. Yeah. Uh, so let's take a look at Matthew's approach to this 
and uh, discuss it. And I think here Gunter Bornkam is very good uh, because this is about the authority of the church to bind and to loose. Uh, uh, he notes that the directions for church discipline on binding and loosing are preceded by the parable of the lost sheep and the famous instruction of Jesus to Peter on readiness to forgive seven times 70. Mm, right. Thus the procedure of the congregation to protect its purity is put under the superior rule of life, quoting Borncom, namely the handing on of received mercy. He says this must not for a moment be forgotten. Apart from this greater context of received mercy, and as a purely legal act, congregational discipline would become a pharisaic attempt to anticipate the last judgment and prematurely to separate the just from the unjust. Of course, he has in mind here the famous parable unique to Matthew of the tares and the wheat, the wheat and the tares in the field. Well, we might talk about that later. And also the unforgiving servants, you know, the servant who's forgiven a preposterous like trillions of dollars and then beats up someone who owes him 10 bucks and um, the the master is not at all impressed and puts him in prison to pay every last penny. Right. Yeah. Uh, Of course, that's divine discipline. That's a that's a metaphor of divine discipline beyond our our human competence. But uh, but the point is, is the huge importance of forgiveness that that this gospel expresses. Yeah. Right. So for Borncom, the teaching on church discipline is encased in the fundamental motifs of Jesus's teaching, namely his concern for the humble and his call to humility, his love commandment in the expectation of the coming rule of God and of the last judgment, in which questions about deeds of mercy will have to be answered. So again, the, the it's this new Torah, this new interpretation of the of the law and the prophets which elevates the love commandments as the inner center of the fulfillment of the law uh, in which the instructions on uh, discipline uh, are being uh, uh, based so binding and loosing you know what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven you have the authority to do that the congregation can say to a wayward member, you are uh, 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 expelled, we hope, temporarily to, until you come to your senses, right? Uh, uh, and uh, we can just as easily loose what we have bound. Uh, we have the authority to loose, to forgive the penalty or pardon the penalty we've imposed, right? Uh, uh, if our if our discipline has the purpose of, sh- of bringing you to repentance and renewal of life. And this authority to do this is by the presence and support of the exalted Lord Jesus in the community until the end of the age. And Borncom makes the very interesting comment that this corresponds with the Jewish Torah practice and conception of the Shekinah, that Jesus is in the midst of the congregation the way in which the glory of God is present in the synagogue of Israel. So, the authority to bind and loose is based upon the presence of this Jesus, and it has to be discipled the discipline of the church has to itself be discipled by Jesus's fundamental teachings, humility, love, the expectation that we will be judged according to the rule of mercy. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just, as just listening to you talk about this, I'm just struck again by the contrast of my previous perception of Matthew as just being this kind of hard, mean, scary gospel. And, you know, to hear you tell it now, well, no, actually, Matthew takes really seriously the incredible harm done by 
abusive, destructive, corrupt behavior. And that doesn't get a pass, even if someone cries out, Lord, Lord, he's really concerned about the little ones. And yet even confronting the perpetrators, it's always with the provision that the goal is for them to be restored, for them to come to their senses, to repent, to be forgiven, uh, to exercise mercy. And again, they only get as far away as Gentile, which is someone who needs to start over at the beginning, but not someone who is yet cat cast into the outer darkness. That is really a, a very, very late eschatological decision that God alone will make. Um, and in the meanwhile, that the positive way to spend our lives is is in the proper works of, of mercy and kindness towards one another. So again, previous, previous perception of Matthew, be gone. You're just completely inaccurate. Gosh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I think that is very interesting. And it corresponds... We, we talked about the, the place of Matthew. We didn't talk about the time of Matthew so much. And I think this definitely locates Matthew in the second going to third generation of Christians. Um, I think by Matthew's time, the uh, Jerusalem has been leveled by the Romans. The temple uh, has been uh, destroyed. That's why the constant uh, repetition of the prophetic statement, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is being reiterated by Matthew uh, that the destruction of the temple was a divine, uh, happened by divine permission to reinforce the point that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, And with that comes this idea of the delay of the parousia, the the earliest Christians, of course, expected that the resurrection had begun with Jesus. Matthew alone has the story of the tombs being opened and the uh, saints uh, appearing in Jerusalem uh, around the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, the zombie apocalypse part of yeah. Matthew's gospel. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And, and the, but that's this idea that the resurrection of Jesus... Uh, is the beginning of the general resurrection. And that, of course, fades away with time and with the realization, the increasing realization that only Jesus was raised from the dead, which indicates the specialness of Jesus, which then points in the direction of his unique status. Um, And I would say, against Christer Stendhal, in that respect, in the direction of a doctrine of the Incarnation, which is Borncom points out, how can the church in this prolonged period of history in which the early expectation that the world was about to be cosmically transformed with the return of the Son of Man in glory, as that kind of fades into the distant background, how does the church deal with ongoing history? And dealing with ongoing history means there's going to be terrors sowed alongside the wheat, and their roots are going to be all tangled up together. And if you start pulling out the weeds, you're going to uproot the wheat. And it's a, an act of hubris, a, a premature uh, act of power that you think you're in the position to execute such judgment with such precision. So you have to live with the church as corpus per mixtum, to use Augustine's phrase, as a mixed body. Yeah. And I think you also need a dialectic between the salvation history approach and the apocalyptic approach, because the salvation history alone is too domesticating, but the apocalyptic alone leads to violence. And so you need these to be mutually interpenetrating and informing each other. What I call that is Christologically modified apocalyptic. Okay. All right. Well, let's go into some some parables now. Um, so there's probably more than we're going to get to in the time we have left. Uh, the commentary I read said that um, Jesus' use of parables is without precedent almost in ancient literature altogether. Even in the Old Testament, things that could qualify as parables are pretty few and far between. And that what is recorded in the Gospels of, of Jesus' teaching is kind of like almost like the explosion of a new genre with a kind of unprecedented power in it. So just that that is the the starting note for this. Um, There are two that I would like to talk about that um, one is less often talked about and one is more, but um, I think are 
really interesting to dive into more deeply. So there, um, the first is the parable of the wedding feast and the special garment. And so this is when the the uh, you know the Lord uh, throws a big wedding feast and then people people don't come. They send stupid excuses and he gets really mad and then he sends out his people to just gather everybody and get everybody that you can bring them and bring them to my party. And so then all these people who were not originally chosen show up and become part of the party. And they're clearly is some sort of um, allusion there to Jewish rejection of Jesus, Gentile acceptance of Jesus. But then the story, um, which could be just a a simple supersessionistic tale, though we should not read it that way, um, ends with this very startling um, figure of a man who is found in the wedding feast, but he is not wearing the wedding garment. So everybody gets a special, you know, garment to wear, a robe to wear as part of this. He is found without it. He is suddenly identified as being someone in there without the garment and said, how did you get in here? And the man is speechless. And then he is cast into the outer darkness. Um, That's a pretty rough one on the face of it. Um, I have a sense of what I think it's about, but dad, why don't you take a stab at it first? Well, I'll tell you what the traditional interpretation was that I was taught as a child, that the robe, the wedding robe is the righteousness of Christ. And you're allowed into the wedding banquet if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you're found as an imposter who got in there without wearing the righteousness of Christ, out with you, scoundrel. <laughs> I don't think that's too far off. I think the traditional association also already in the New Testament of baptism with a special garment, I think that's probably what it's alluding to, which is that, yes, come into the feast, but you need to be clothed in baptism before you get there. I think you can still read it as being very harsh that way, but um, I I would I would read it almost completely the opposite, which will take me to the other parable. But do you have something you want to say first? Yeah, I think that if we, as long as we don't interpret being clothed with the righteousness of Christ by baptism in some legalistic sense, like okay, you got your insurance policy, you did the you did the you had the kid done. Or something like that. Yeah, right. As long as we understand being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, really meaning renouncing all righteousness of my own to live into the righteousness of Christ, demonstrated by his faith and, and love and hope um, in his earthly course as something that was vindicated on Easter morn and exalted to supreme authority, which will judge the living and the dead, so that we understand being clothed with with Christ as a way of life, a way of discipleship, then I think that would be a good interpretation. Hmm. Yeah, so so the way I would gloss that further is with the parable from chapter 25 about the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids and their oil lamps, a very classic one for for Advent. And... um, but it, people, again, often take it as being really harsh and awful that there are five wise virgins who have plenty of oil, five who don't. And then, you know, they have a crisis. They have to go and get it. And by the time they come back with their oil, the doors are shut and the, the bridegroom won't let them in. And it just seems really mean, <laughs> just like kicking right. out the man without a, a garment. But um, to me, I think both of these stories are, first of all, about um, um, inviting people to genuinely be prepared for the Lord to actually invest seriously of their lives and their times in preparing. So the man without the garments who thinks he can just be a part of the grand celebration of redemption with no concern whatever for what it means to be, you know, baptized, clothed in Christ's righteousness, give his life over to that. Or these virgins whose priorities are entirely in the wrong place, who are perfectly well aware that their oil is running low and aren't doing anything about it. And I, I the the other you know the wise virgins seem mean but they they also seem to have an appropriate sense of their their limits and their refusal to help i think is actually an expression of appropriate modesty of of human weakness and say you know we have enough to provide for ourselves <laughs> we we can't give you what you were supposed to give yourself but also you know has been offered to you it's not like you were unaware that this is what you were supposed to do so there's a certain i think discipleship invitation there as well but i think maybe 
maybe even a, on a larger level, this is not about failing to keep a law, but it's actually really a par- these are both parables about rejecting the grace of God, the grace of God that has gone above and a, a, beyond the law, has fulfilled the law. Uh, superfluously in Christ, and yet it is regarded with contempt. And I think, so I think the figure of the man in the wedding parable is somebody who is contemptuous and um, looks down his nose upon what has been offered to him through Christ. And also these five foolish virgins had every opportunity to fill up their lamps and be rich and be part of what the bridegroom had to offer and just didn't think it was worth their while. So I would interpret these not as, as a disobedient parables, but as contempt of grace parables. And I think there is a, 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 a modest but present theme throughout the scripture is God is very willing to forgive breaches of the law to those who are repentant. But what can God do with people who sneer at his grace? I mean, what else is there besides grace? And the, uh, the intimation is that, well, if you refuse to know God through grace, all that is left is terror. And both of these parables end in terror. But that is because the people opted for contempt and that led them to terror rather than taking the grace that was offered them. Yeah, that's good, Sarah. The, uh, the, the harsh theme of judgment. Let me go back to the Sermon on the Mount on that for a minute. You remember how the refer- refrain is initiated in the Sermon on the Mount and then it recurs a number of times. If your hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better to enter uh, heaven without one hand than to enter into hell with both hands. If your eye offend thee, thee, pluck it out. Those harsh, harsh statements. And also, you know, these parables that you're talking about, concluding with, they will be cast into the eternal fire where there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Right? I think that, you know, this is one case where um, our friend uh, uh, N.T. Wright is simply wrong that the, that the idea of eternal punishment is simply absent in, in the New Testament. I don't think that's right at all. I think it is there, though it's not speculated about, but it, the, the threat of eternal loss is certainly there, and it's in these vivid images that we're talking about. And uh, so, so the choice about that's laid upon you about the narrow road to heaven and the broad road to hell is important, an important theme in the Gospel of Matthew, I would say. When I was a—I told you I read the New Testament when I was a senior in high school, and I read the Gospel of Matthew. And I had a girlfriend at the time, and uh, I was she was kind of a lackadaisical— um, Orthodox Christian. I think her parents were from Bulgaria or something like that. And uh, of course, she knew nothing about the Bible. And I was all enthusiastic about reading the Gospel of Matthew. And I asked her, just read these three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount. And she read them and she said, man, that is just so harsh. (laughs) You know, I mean, that was her reaction to it, the kind of reaction you've been talking about. But I think that it's important to understand that these threats are addressed to the community of the disciples in the situation of the delay of the parousia. They're not addressed to the world, like believe in Jesus or you're going to go to hell. They're addressed to the community. You believe in Jesus, be his disciple, follow him, or you're in big trouble with the with the Lord who you believe in. I think that's the kind of the, the right way to spin uh, spin, interpret these stories. Hmm. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the idea that you had a Bulgarian Orthodox girlfriend in high school. I never knew that. Sorry. The podcast brings out all sorts of biographical secrets, doesn't it? Yeah, let's so okay, listeners, you hear it here for the first time, and so did I. Okay, well, and, so and so and so will you know who when she listens to this episode? <laughs> I'm sure she knew about knows about it already. Okay. <laughs> a little late to do anything about it now. They're almost what you guys are close to fifty years, right? So right. Uh, okay. Anyhow, moving right along there. So so that's interesting. So this is a uh, you know uh, addresses to people within the community. So I actually like to run by you um, an interpretation of the sheep and the goats at the final judgment of Matthew twenty five. Probably the probably the most famous unique parable of Matthew's and. Um, right. 
I have I have had it thrown at me even in public events as proof that uh, everything Paul says about justification by faith can't possibly be true because it says right here in Jesus' own mouth that you got to do good works to be saved, um, which is we won't we won't get into the hermeneutical problems there. Uh, so another interpretation I have heard of this though is that actually this is not about the judgment of believers in Jesus. This is answering the question of what of those who have never known Jesus directly. And so actually what it's about is the judgment of the nations who have not known Jesus, but they come through death to the last day, and there it is asked of them, you know, or or Jesus rather informs them what they did or did not do. And they are bewildered because they have never encountered Jesus before. And then Jesus says, if you did it to one of the least of these, my disciples, you've done it to me. And again, you could interpret this in the terms of like, well, uh, Jesus believers are saved by their faith, but everybody else is saved by their good works. (laughs) But the point of this parable I've been told is actually that Christ is so truly present in his disciples, that when the nations encounter his disciples and respond to them with their treatment, either good or bad, what they are actually doing is by proxy responding to Christ himself. And in that way, coming into contact with him and responding with faith or unfaith, uh, kindness or cruelty, as the case may be. So it is actually still the same nature of judgment, but this is how you talk about people who have never had the the direct um, evangelization or opportunity to be baptized or profess faith in Christ. How does that strike you? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. Um, (laughs) I think that uh, it's certainly theologically important to insist upon the hidden reign and presence of Jesus Christ in the nations. One of the meanings of the ascension is that the Lord of the universe who's promised a public manifestation in the end is in fact already active and present and ruling and overruling the wayward creation. And in just the way that the parable of the sheep and the goats is specifying. So I think that the intention of this interpretation is probably on the right track. Uh, if 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 we say something like Jesus went away to heaven and left it up to us, the church, to spread the good news so that the believers could be saved and everybody else could go to hell, I think we've really missed the boat <laughs> in all sorts of ways. Uh, I think the idea is rather Jesus is exalted. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is an assertion of the vindication of the crucified and all that that implies. And that, therefore, as the exalted, risen and exalted Lord, he can be present in just the way Gunther Bornkamp specified earlier in these humble ways of showing mercy to the people who the world treats as garbage that the parable of the sheep and the goats enumerates. And so it's in fact true that as you have done so unto the least of these, you've done so unto me. I think that's simply true. I think that's simply true. Uh, but I don't think that Matthew is thinking of the, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the unevangelized Gentiles. I think Matthew is thinking uh, of the lackadaisical, lukewarm Christians who have forgotten the meaning, the call and the meaning of discipleship. Yeah, in that respect, there's resonance with the epistle of James. Okay, well, we're almost out of time here. There's another parable you wanted to look at before we wrap up? No, I'd like to talk, uh, uh, what I'd actually like to talk about a little bit is one more resonance between the gospel of John and the gospel of Matthew in respect to the resurrection stories. The scholar Otto Michel uh, writes about the conclusion of the gospel of Matthew. It seems to me that Matthew and John are confronted by quite similar problems in the question of certainty about Easter. Neither underestimates the old Easter stories, but both point beyond these into the future. Neither Matthew nor the fourth evangelist deprive the vision 
of the Risen One, of its significance within the tradition. It remains an important aspect of the Easter story. But the vision is now taken up into the preaching and guaranteed by the preaching. The problem of doubt is touched on in both Gospels. In Matthew, the message of the Risen One and obedience to his word in this way is the way in which doubt is overcome. For Matthew, the word of the Risen One contains the way to master doubt about the truth of the message and the reality of the Risen Ones. It's, of course, he's pointing to the similarity uh, between the story of doubting Thomas and John and the report that in Galilee the Risen One appeared to the disciples um, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. So how do you deal with the fact that, okay, a long time ago they said Jesus rose from the dead and that's still being um, announced as the good news. Uh, but what have you done for us lately, Jesus? I mean, where are you? <laughs> You're supposed to be showing up and changing the cosmos. Uh, and both John and Matthew are responding to this lingering doubt about the truthfulness of the Easter proclamation. And both of them are asserting that in the word and the sacraments, in the preaching, it is the risen Jesus himself who is present and asserting his authority. And that authority uh, prevails when faith and obedience uh, are worked by the Spirit. Of course, that's not a theological solution for us, but I, I think that's a very interesting observation about the place in time of both Matthew and John coming on the second going into the third generation of the church. Yeah, that's very interesting because oh, so then Matthew ends with an appeal towards baptismal ministry. John ends with an appeal towards uh, confession and absolution ministry. And if we add Luke, who's not too far off in time from either of them, he, with his road to Emmaus, is talking about the holy meal that the people share together. And of course, there's, you know, preaching going on in, in all three. So that that is very striking. You know, I have to remember, I have to say the first time I remember like reading through on my own Matthew 28 and coming upon them, you know, the 11 are with Jesus and they're up, up on the mountain and it says, but some doubted. That just smacked me over the head. That is so stunning. And what really struck me about it was that you can be looking right at him and watch him ascend into heaven and still doubt, um, you know, for, especially for a, a modern a scientific era person, that the plain evidence of the eyes doesn't work. Well, and that's a Johannine theme too, right? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But uh, Matthew almost says, you can see and not believe. These are correlative realities, seeing and believing. It's not that one always takes priority over the other. And so if that's the case, if you can have plain eyewitness evidence that doesn't work all the same, then something else is required. And I think that would point to this here about being that there is a preaching and sacramental ministry that need to be happen for even what you see to become believable for you. Yeah, really good. That's a really good uh, motif, a, a note on which to kind of start drawing this discussion of Matthew to an end. Because what Matthew, the gospel of Matthew as a whole is about, is instruction to the church on how to be the church in this situation in which the primitive gospel has been outrun by the continuing passage of time and all the headaches and problems that the continuing passage of time brings upon the community. And uh, Matthew's answer to that question, we talked about this in the previous episode, was to emphasize, in, uh, you know, to assert without really integrating, but to assert that genuine faith in the risen Lord uh, is faith in the presence of God with us to the end of the age, and that presence is appropriately uh, uh, understood stood in practice in a kind of 
spiritual discipleship, of following Jesus, not simply by imitating his external behavior, but internalizing his teaching of the fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Yeah, but in order to internalize it, I think you have to be clothed clothed in the baptismal garment because you don't want to have all that book learning in your head but not have the garment on when you show up at the wedding feast. (laughs) Right, right. Hey, one little parable unique to Matthew that we didn't discuss I'd like your opinion on is in chapter 12, the parable of the seven worst worst demons who come back (sighs) to occupy the house that's been swept clean and put in order. Uh, but the owner didn't do anything to fill the vacuum. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on previous episodes. I, I remember sometime in the past few years, you brought it to my attention, and it suddenly like became almost my interpretive key for almost all of, you know, secular 21st century Western civilization. <laughs> you know, we, we there were there were genuine demons that needed to be expelled, but nothing substantial was put in their place, and a whole bunch of other devils have showed up in their absence. Yeah. I mean, isn't that your basic take on it, too? Well, that would make the Gospel of Matthew very contemporary, wouldn't it? It's like um, the Christian faith uh, nurtured and and disciplined, discipled uh, the Western civilization up until uh, it overreached. And thinking people began to say, if this is the religion of the Prince of Peace, who needs it? Let's expel <laughs> that demon. Yeah, yeah. Away with the away with judgment. Away with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Away with uh, the hypocrisy of condemning hypocrisy all the time. You know, and just this this kind of um, immense revulsion at the excesses of the Inquisition, the Crusades, um, the burning of heretics at the stake, the Salem witch trials, the uh, 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 predations of colonialism upon uh, Native peoples, all justified in the name of evangelism. Just let's be done with it. Let's be done with it and get rid of this demon. And, you know, in my theology, Sarah, this is much of what I summarize in my motif of the end of Christendom, the attempt to turn Christianity into a political order, rather than requiring that the community of disciples learn to stand on their own two feet, which are the gospel, which are the gospel and the scriptures of Israel. Uh, that's been a theme for me since the beginning of my uh, my academic career. Um, so yes, I do think we've cast out one demon and, uh, we've not done anything to replace it. We believe that you can have some kind of cultural free for all in which every individual is allowed to exercise their own sovereignty fantasy. Uh, and then we could all live together in peace and harmony. And I just think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a utopian nonsense. And one of the reasons why we're at each other's throat Like I pointed out last season, when all we have is our assertion of rights, individual rights, and our appeal to the state to secure our individual rights, there's no difference between demanding abortion on demand and demanding the right to keep and bear arms. Both are nothing but assertions of personal sovereignty to protect my bodily autonomy against the trespass of others. And I want the state to guarantee that to me. No wonder we're at each other's other's throats, and neither side can acknowledge the legitimate concern of the other, that abortion without demand has no limitations on the road to infanticide, um, and that uh, unrestricted access to guns means uh, that way too many uh, uh, unstable and murderous people will have access to weapons that destroy for, uh, far out of proportion uh, to their hatreds. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, just uh, my, my own 
commentary on that. I guess it just seems to me that the separation of religious power from political power and the necessity of granting religious freedom are both actually intrinsic to the Christian message. Um, but the fact that people believe those now without understanding that they are in fact Christian and Jewish Christian ideas means that uh, without the the living church, apart from political patronage, sustaining those insights, actually, why should you grant people freedom of, of religion or freedom of thought or freedom of speech? And why shouldn't you um, keep religious power out of state power? You know, and in fact, I think one of the reasons why political feelings run so strong is because it has symbolically and um, um, narratively taken up the space where religion used to be prominently. And so state itself becomes the religion. And I mean, that in, in many very explicit ways, that's what communism did. But it had to be atheist in order to make itself the true religion. And that continues in many parts of the world right now. So I um, and I, I think I mean, this is this is where we need our, our uh, what did you call it, Christologically informed apocalyptic or Christologically modified apocalyptic. Like we have to continue, assuming that history is going to go on for quite some time yet, we have to invest deeply in the ongoing institutions and protections that allow people to flourish as much as, as possible in this veil of tears. And at the same time, we have to recognize that there is no solution within history itself to these terrible ironies and internal betrayals, and that it might have been absolutely necessary for Christendom to die, and it could still be that what succeeds it is also terrible in its own unique way. Yeah. Sobering thoughts, but for us, it, I think the Gospel of Matthew summons us to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which means living into our baptism, and as a result, being catechized, discipled, disciplined by the, the call to disciple, the teaching uh, of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And if uh, our listeners can do that in this year of Matthew, God bless them. <laughs> well, and I, I think also to speak to all of our, our panic at where things are headed, to really take to heart Jesus' final words, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. If we can make whatever witness and challenges and protests we need to within that confidence of Jesus' authority, I think we will do less harm and have better chance of doing something good for our ongoing history. Amen, sister. And so it turns out this is a perfect segue to what we're doing next week. We are going to be talking about Howard Thurman, who was the spiritual father to the civil rights movement. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.